Did you ever come across something as innocuous as a photograph? It's not your photograph, but you look at it and you can't help but wonder about the people and places in the picture. Wonder if there's a bigger story behind them. Today I'm examining a story that is not strictly a cemetery story, but it certainly has a weird twist that ends up there. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So, this is partially me being lazy and partially me just wanting to tell what I think is a really cool story. Like I said, it doesn't start off as a cemetery story, and so normally I never would bring it here to tell it. But then it took an unexpected cemetery turn, which was actually quite remarkable. So, this is a personal story for me. I don't know any of the people involved, strictly speaking, but somehow, weirdly, I got caught up with them. So I hope you enjoy this. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday season, Christmas, Hanukkah, and if you are listening the day this comes out, anticipation of New Year's. Hopefully all of you are looking forward to something in the new year. I know there's a lot of uncertainty still, and it's not really what we all expected from this holiday season, but it is what it is. I think it's kind of silly to celebrate New Year's in general, but I understand why people do get excited. Certainly champagne is nothing to uh, set aside if you have the excuse to drink some. Personally, back in Atlanta, um, had a very long Christmas week. Not necessarily bad, just long. lot going on. Got to see a lot of people, which was exciting. Knock on wood, I'm still COVID negative, despite, like everybody else out there, I'm sure, having been exposed from multiple angles by all kinds of people. So I am feeling very grateful and very lucky that almost two years into this thing, I still have managed to avoid getting sick and staying healthy. So I only bring that up, well, I bring it up partially because it's on everybody's mind, but also because this story sort of starts with COVID. Not in a real sense, but just in a general sense. So like everybody else, I had a rough 2020. Um, Unlike a lot of people, I did have some good things happen that year, one of which was I was able to get a surgery that I had needed for a very long time. I was approved for the surgery in February, then they stopped doing basically anything but emergency surgeries. So I had to wait it out, and I eventually had surgery in July. Now, like most people, I had already been quarantining since March, so I was very healthy going into the surgery. But afterwards, it becomes increasingly difficult. I'm already going a little nuts after several months by myself because I do live alone. Limited access to people, working remotely, spending basically all of my time in my tiny 600-square-foot apartment. After the surgery gets even harder because I'm not mobile. I can't lift anything. I am very limited in the amount of activities that I can do. I was getting outside and walking for an hour or two every day, which was great and got me up and got me moving and got me healing a lot faster. But it's also Atlanta in the middle of August and July. So it's very hot. So even then, I can only be outside for so long before I start to melt. So as a result, I did a lot of things in the house. I did what I could because I didn't really want to watch TV for 12 hours a day. And that included cleaning and going through things. Organizing, I got rid of a lot of stuff. I live in a 600 square foot apartment, so I don't have that much stuff to begin with. But if you have ever been in my apartment, I'm not even a pack rat. It's just I have a lot of things, particularly a lot of books and a lot of clothes and not a lot of places to put them. So one of the things was I went through, I organized all of the family photographs, all of that type of stuff. And while I was doing that, I came across a couple of pictures. Now, these pictures were not family photographs. And they came from a variety of sources. They were pictures that had ended up in my possession when I had bought certain things at either yard sales or flea markets. 
a couple of these pictures I remember I found in a box of old sewing patterns. I used to like to sew a lot, and so I had bought old dress patterns. Again, I can't remember if it was a yard sale or something else. And others had come out of this old trunk I had bought, again, at a yard sale. They had been kind of tucked into one of the pockets. And I had found these pictures, had looked at them. You know, I always enjoyed old photographs, and they had sort of gotten mixed in with my family photos over the years. And some of them had names on them, some of them didn't. And of course, it was, I could never just throw away somebody else's photos, so now they've obviously gotten mixed in with my own, even though I have no idea who most of these people are. And so I flipped over one, and this is really where the story starts. So... I no longer have the photograph, um, but I can describe it to you. It was a picture of three women. And if I had to guess, I would say this was taken sometime in the 1940s. It is a grown woman and then two younger women who look like teenagers. One is an older teenager, I would say probably 17, 19. And the other one is sort of a younger, maybe 13, 14 year old. And they look enough alike that you can probably tell that it's a mother and two daughters. And they are standing outside in the winter. They all have winter coats on. There's no snow on the ground, but you can see that the trees are all bare. And it's a very bleak kind of midwinter scene. And if you flip it over on the back, there is a Christmas greeting. So two things. There is a Christmas greeting from an individual. And there was also one of those little silver foils, which... Depending on how old you are, you might not remember these. I remember them a lot. You could stick them on like the back of envelopes to seal them. You usually had to glue them yourself. They weren't like stickers, but they were like little foil sticker shapes. And this one was blue and silver, and it was in the shape of a candle. And so it was affixed to the back, and it said, Merry Christmas, and then it had a signature. And the signature was J. Cole's Hedgeman. So my assumption was that this year, instead of sending out Christmas cards, and I'm assuming this was probably during World War II, so my thought was maybe because of shortages and rationing that there were no Christmas cards that year, that perhaps this man had developed photographs and sent out pictures of his family instead of a photograph. Excuse me, pictures instead of a greeting card. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I had a name probably of the photographer. So while I'm sitting on my couch recovering, bored out of my mind, I decided to try to find somebody to give this picture back to. Now it's the 40s. This is 80 years ago now, so it's possible there won't be anybody. So I sat down and I googled the name J. Coles Hedgeman. And the first thing that pops up is an obituary. Not for Mr. Hedgeman himself, but rather for one of his daughters. So I will read to you. Nancy Coles Hedgeman Stevens, a fourth generation East Chop seasonal resident for more than 50 years, and the Gazette's East Columnist correspondent, died January 14th in Charlotte, North Carolina after a long illness. She was the wife of the late Paige P. Stevens. She was born March 19, 1921, in Providence, Rhode Island, a daughter of the late Joseph Coles Hedgeman and Dorothy Wigan Hedgeman. Her father's grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Barack G. Coles of New York City, began coming to the vineyard in the 1870s and were among the first summer residents of East Chop, living first on Atlantic Avenue and later on Highland Drive, today's East Chop Drive. So, this confirmed, all right, I had found one of this man's daughters, and the J in J. Cole's Hedgeman stood for Joseph. Now, this is dated January 2007, so now already more than a decade old. I went through, continued to read, and certainly Nancy Cole's Hedgeman Stevens led a fascinating life. In addition to being sort of the local, I don't want to say gossip columnist, but sort of society writer for the Vineyard Gazette, meaning Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. In addition to that, she had led a pretty fascinating life. She was very involved in lots of things, well-educated. Her husband was a decorated World War II veteran. 
And in addition to that, she had three sons. So they mention in this obituary that one of her three sons, Paige Jr., still has his family's house on Martha's Vineyard. Now, ironically, I myself grew up going to Martha's Vineyard for vacation. Martha's Vineyard is very famous. This is where many, many of the presidents have vacationed. There's a lot of security. It's very small. My stepbrother even got married on Martha's Vineyard. So I am very familiar with East Chop. I know where it is. Um, Also, and I loved this, is that in lieu of flowers, they asked that contributions be made to either the Martha's Vineyard Museum, which I've been to many times, or designated to the Fund for the Restoration of the East Chop Lighthouse. And I can remember very tenderly, I, I love lighthouses. Almost as much as I love cemeteries, I love lighthouses. They were my first love. If there would be any interest in it, I would 100% start a lighthouse podcast, but I feel like it's even more niche than a cemetery podcast. But my aunts and uncles were very indulgent when I was younger. They would take me, and I can remember one night we needed something for the liquor store. So my aunt took me out, and she agreed to drive me past the East Chop Lighthouse while we were on our way to the liquor store, which I'm sure the family needed liquor more than I needed to see the lighthouse, but it was a great sacrifice for the family. East Chop Lighthouse is also very unusual because, so East Chop in the Vineyard Haven portion of Martha's Vineyard has East Chop and West Chop and there's a lighthouse on either side and they basically are the two headlands on either side of the bay. And so this is a lighthouse that's basically right in a neighborhood, which is sort of unusual. So I saw that she had three sons alive, one of whom still had the parent's house because her husband had predeceased her. And so I started to look into this and not to be a weird stalker person, but this is what I do for a living or I have for a long time. I look up records on people's houses. Um, Odds are I know how much your parents or you paid for your house. I can tell that because I spend a lot of times with tax records. So I was able to establish where this individual was and I was actually able to find a P.O. box on Martha's Vineyard in the Stevens name, because obviously being an island, a lot of them are just summer residents, so they don't get mail delivered to their houses there. So I took a shot, and I wrote a little note, and I don't remember exactly when I did this. I want to say it was sometime last summer, so probably August of 2020. I wrote a little note on a piece of note paper explaining how I had come across the photograph, enclosed the photograph, and sent it off. And in my mind, it was, I had done my due diligence. I had tried to find the owner of the photograph. You know, worst comes to worst, they would think I was some sort of psychopath and open it up, throw it in the trash. In whatever case, I had tried. The photograph was out of my hands. So be it. So I did this, like I said, more than a year ago, year and a half ago. And I very much forgot about it. I did it. It was a silly little thing. It helped clean out one piece of paper out of my already overcrowded apartment. And I really didn't think about it. Until one day, about a month ago, I was going through my mail. I have my recycling bin outside my door. So normally 90% of my mail goes straight into the recycling bin before it even gets into the apartment. And there was one envelope in there that I was not familiar with. And it was a handwritten envelope addressed to me. I looked at the postmark. It was Philadelphia. Um, As some of you might remember, I used to live outside of Philadelphia. So I wondered if it might have something to do with, you know, my old 401k or something. One of the schools I taught at closed last year. So I didn't know if there was something that they had of mine that they might have sent me. So I took it inside, opened it up. And the letter I received was quite a surprise. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read to you from that letter. And as I look at this letter, I realize I already lied to you. So the letter starts, Dear Miss Clappin, I find myself looking at a letter you sent to me on January 6th, 2021. I think I started writing this in August and then I wondered if I was a psychopath and I waited a long time to mail it. Even allowing for the unhurried pace of the United States Postal Service and slowed more forward by delays, my failure responding until now is embarrassing. My apologies. You may recall, or not, given the time that has passed, 
You found in a box of sewing patterns bought at a yard sale some years ago an old black and white photograph of two women and a girl. It was undated. Alas, the subjects unidentified, and the envelope had long ago been lost. On the back was affixed a silver and blue foil sticker of a lit candle with a festive bow ringed by stars. Additionally, there was a handwritten note to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It was signed by Coles Hedgemond. At this point, most people would say something like, so what? But you went online and found my mother's obituary in the Vineyard Gazette and deduced that she was the said Coles Hedgeman daughter and that she had a son, me, who had a post office box, all of which are correct. I and my brother are astounded by your diligence. So yes, this Coles Hedgeman was my mother's father. His name, as your research showed, was technically Joseph Coles Hedgeman, but he formally went by J. Coles Hedgeman and informally just as Coles. Later in life, he lived until 90. He would humorously refer to himself as Old Joe. He was an interesting story, family-wise, little of which I knew about until he had passed. I knew him and my grandmother Dorothy, whom we called Doll, quite well. We all summered on Martha's Vineyard. My parents had vacationed at their house until their third child, me, came along, whereupon Dad built a snug cottage in the woods all of a ten-minute walk from theirs, so we spent a lot of time with them, Sunday dinners after church being a chief joy. My brother now has their house, which come summer is peopled with his children and grandchildren, as is family tradition. If I start to write about Pop, this letter may turn into a missive. Suffice it to say, he was once described as the New England equivalent of a Virginia gentleman. I enclose a copy of his obituary, which will give you the details of his life, an idea of what he has looked like. As to the essential mystery here, the identities of the woman in the photograph, I have consulted with my brother, who is the only person alive who might know, and he is now much as in the dark as I. Pop was a fine photographer. He had his own darkroom for developing his photos. And I have to this day several of his photograph books. He was good. He had the eye. While there are a lot of shots of sailing ships and landscape and the like, most of his subjects were people. Obviously, these ladies, who he knew well enough to photograph and send pictures in a Christmas card, as to who they are, we don't know. My brother and I thank you. While this is not a family photo, still Pop took it, developed it, signed it, and sent it. And it has found its way home, along with a very interesting story of how it did so, that we will tell and retell cordially. So I am going to read to you this obituary from the Vineyard Gazette. It is topped by a photograph of... An older gentleman, very, very dapper, wearing a suit with a pocket square and a striped tie. Very distinguished captain of industry type looking. J. Coles Hedgeman, 90, summered at East Chop. J. Coles Hedgeman, Hedgeman, I keep having trouble with that name, a summer resident of East Chop for 90 years, died Friday, September 11th at his home in Rehoboth. The only child of John Rogers Hedgeman Jr. and Elizabeth Coles, he was born November 15, 1896, in New Rochelle, New York. It was as a baby that he first came to the vineyard to visit with his maternal grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Barack G. Coles, who began coming summers from New York in the 1870s. It was on the highlands of the chop that he learned to play golf, a sport he continued with skill and pleasure all of his life. Even last year, he participated in the long drive contest at the Edgartown Golf Club, where he was a charter member, director, and former champion. He learned tennis as a child on one of the first courts on the vineyard, overlooking Nantucket Sound, by the house of George B. Dowley. He went to the Fessenden School, which is in Newton, Massachusetts, for those of you not from the area, and was the oldest living graduate of the Hill School in Pottstown, PA. One year, he attended summer school on Tamagan Avenue. During summer vacations while at Columbia College, class of 1919, he chopped wood in a barn near the top of the chop to get in shape for the football team. Mr. Hedgeman served overseas with the French Ambulance Corps during World War I, and when the United States joined the war, he enlisted in the 56th Field Artillery at Fort Still, Oklahoma. It was on the island, 
meaning Martha's Vineyard, that he met his first wife, Dorothy Wigan, to whom he was married for 64 years. Two years after his death, he married Marguerite Vio, who survives him. Mr. Hedgeman retired two years ago from Hedgeman and Company in Providence, selling agents for cotton yarns and textiles. In Rhode Island, he was a member of the Hope Club, the Agawam Hunt Club, and the Wanamoiset Country Club. At the vineyard, he had been active at the Union Chapel and on the boards of the East Chop Association, the Beach, and Tennis Clubs. Mr. Hedgeman was chairman of the board of the former Plantations Bank in Providence, which was taken over by Old Stone Bank. He was a member of the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association and often used to fly his own plane to and from the islands. He was always a gentleman of the old school in manner and in dress, a fastidious man, a private one, and a teetotaler. Survivors include, and then it goes into his family. So I had discovered the man. And so I read this, and just as his daughter's obituary, also in the Vineyard Gazette, had told me, these were not my people. (laughs) So the closest that I have ever come to the Hope Club, uh, the guy I went to prom with in high school, his grandfather was the cook there. Now, granted, his grandfather also was a chef at John F. Kennedy's wedding, but let's just put this way. We were not those people. Um, I come from very working class factory people. My great-grandfather was an electrician. Uh, My other great-grandfather blew glass. So these were moneyed old school people. But that being said, their lives and the places that they had been and lived very much overlapped with my own. So not only had I gotten a response to my letter and I had gotten this picture, albeit still a mystery, I still have no idea who those three women are, back to his family but they were gracious enough to send me some information about his life. Now, as I'm reading the obituary, something jumped out at me, though, and I had to look into it because he mentioned in the story that he had an interesting story family-wise, most of which he didn't know until after his death. But reading the obituary, the thing that jumped out at me was the only child of John Rogers Hedgeman. Now, The name John Rogers Hedgeman jumps out at me, and it might, depending on how well you remember your American history. Because John Rogers Hedgeman, not junior, but senior, is a pretty famous guy. Now, in the world of architecture, I know him for the same reason that most people know him, because he was the head of Metropolitan Life. Metropolitan Life Health health and Life Insurance is pretty well known in the world for their famous skyscraper, which they built in New York City. Now, this skyscraper was from 1903 to 1913, the tallest building in the world. And the president of MetLife at the time was a big reason for this. He had envisioned that the headquarters for the company was going to match the actual stature So John R. Hedgeman, I had known, because I've seen pictures of him driving the final rivet into the building and building this absolutely massive, um, it was designed by the pretty famous skyscraper architect, Napoleon Lebrun in New York City, and it was based on the Campanile in Venice. So this is, if for an architectural historian, it's a really famous building. It remains the tallest building in the world until it's eventually overtaken by the Woolworth building um, in 1913. Um, So this building, one Madison Avenue, 700 feet tall, just massive. And so for me, it was like, wait a minute, is this the same John R. Hedgeman? I mean, Hedgeman is not that common a name. And so I looked into it and it turns out it was. This random picture that I found in a box of sewing patterns that I don't even really remember where I bought them. He was the grandson of the president of Metropolitan Life, who is like a really big deal. He's up there with John D. Rockefeller and all of it, Henry Flagler, all of these other people who are these captains of industry who were the ones that they were trying to trust bust in the 1890s. 
There are buildings at most of the major universities. Brown University has a Hedgeman Hall in Providence. Rutgers has a Hedgeman Hall. These are big people. These are famous people. What are the odds that this was the photograph I was going to find? And so, because I can't leave anything alone, I started to look into the story of who J. Cole's Hedgeman was. Why his story doesn't really talk too much about the fact that his grandfather was one of the most famous millionaires in the history of the United States. And also, what happened to the little old mausoleum that his grandfather built? Because that is a whole other part of the story. So, I am going to read to you a little bit about his parents and grandparents, tell you a little bit about the story, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the Hedgeman Mausoleum, which, surprise, surprise, is in fact not where J. Cole's Hedgeman is buried. So, stick around. This is going to be an interesting one. And we're going to have to start by going back to the 1840s. So the senior John R. Hedgeman, he comes from a pretty distinguished line. He is literally from one of the old Dutch families of New York. So if you're looking for a lineage in the United States, it's really hard to beat. If you listen to the episode that I did on Sleepy Hollow, I talked about how people like the Roosevelts, a lot of their this prestige in New York society and even in American society is tied back to being part of not just the Mayflower group, but more those original Dutch settlers in New York who first bought Manhattan. And the Hedgemans definitely fall into that category. You can see if you do any search on ancestries and things like that, they definitely tie into a lot of the early families of New York. And John Hedgeman is no different. He is born April 6th, 1844. And his father and mother are both part of this old New York society. Now, his history and metropolitan life is really interesting. So he doesn't take over as president until 1891, but he obviously works with them before that. To give you an idea about the exponential growth of metropolitan life, in 1870, there were about 10,000 life insurance policies in the United States. By the time John Hedgeman dies on April 16, 1918, there are more than 20 million Under his control, the company grew from having a value of $11 million to nearly $200 million. So he was quite the businessman. And certainly this was not his own, his only claim to fame in terms of business, but this is by far the most famous. He married Evelyn Lyon in 1870. She was about the same age, born 1845, and she died four years before him in 1914. And of their children, only two really survive to adulthood, and that is John Hedgeman Jr. And his, and this is where I'm a little confused. I don't know if Abby Hedgeman was his sister or his daughter. I have seen her listed as his, as his daughter. I don't think that's true, just based on her age. And when I looked up all the statistics on her, I believe she was actually his sister because she is born in 1846, dies in 1921. So I'm going to go ahead and say that his only surviving child is John Hedgeman Jr. Again, that's something depending on which articles you read and things like that. So I'm also going to read you his obituary because it is wonderful. Okay. John R. Hedgeman, near 75, is dead, president of Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, succumbs to long illness, lead in small policies, built up one of the greatest companies in America during his career. John Rogers Hedgeman, for 49 years an officer of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company and for the last 28 years its president, died yesterday at his home on Orienta Point in Maromnek. Mr. Hedgeman had been in poor health since an attack of pneumonia in the fall of 1916. Despite his 74 years and his poor health, Mr. Hedgeman retained the presidency of the institution, which he probably, more than any other man, had built until his death. Death came suddenly after luncheon yesterday when Mr. Hedgeman collapsed upon rising from a table and walking towards a couch. This is some detailed stuff. 
He had previously suffered several heart attacks. Occasionally during the past two years, Mr. Hedgeman, regardless of the advice of his physician, Dr. Eugene T. Morrison of New Rochelle, made the trip to the Metropolitan Building to deal with matters which he felt required his personal attention there. Since January last, however, his condition was such that he was compelled to obey the orders of the doctor and remain at Orienta Point, where he had lived for more than 30 years. His interests in Maromnek. On February 3rd last, when Hedgeman was ill in bed, fire destroyed the garage and stable on the estate, with bric-a-brac and furniture from his townhouse, the total damage being estimated at $75,000. The flames for time endangered the mansion, and preparations were made to move the invalid, but this not was not necessary. Although a man of big business affairs, Mr. Hedgeman also took kindly interest in the affairs in Maromnek's. I'm probably pronouncing that one wrong. M-A-M-A-R-O-N-E-C-K. Mama Ron Neck. He was an honorable member of the local hook and ladder company, director of the First National Bank, member of the Maromnek Cooperative Building and Loan Association, and a number of other organizations and societies. His estate at Orienta Point was improved and beautified under his direction during the 30 years of his residence. He took as much interest in landscape gardening on his grounds as he did in the impressive housing of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in its great skyscraper. In addition to a collection of Oriental art, a form with which he was well acquainted having found time in his energetic career for painstaking study, Mr. Hedgeman's home contained objects of art and from other countries which indicated his discriminating taste i will also say having read through his census records he also employed a large number of individuals from other countries particularly from japan at the time of his death he had eight servants living and working on the property three of which were from japan mr hedgeman was born on the old king's highway in flatlands now called flatbush on April 18th, 1844, looks like the newspaper got that wrong. He was actually born on April 16th. His death yesterday occurred only 12 days before the day in which he would have passed three quarters of a century. He was the son of John G. and Charlotte Owens Rogers Hedgeman. His education was in public schools and at the Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute. As a boy, he displayed an amazing aptitude for mathematics, an aptitude which was to make him later in life a master of statistics, particularly those concerning the insurance business. After a short term in a bank, he became at the age of 22 accountant for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Here he had an opportunity to display his command of figures and shortly developed an unflagging interest in every phase of the insurance business. After four years of hard work in several positions with the company, he was offered the position of secretary of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. He remained just four months in this position before he was promoted at only 26 to the position of vice president. In the same month, October of 1870, whoops, and I have to scroll because this is a very long obituary, he married Miss Evelyn Lyon, who also lived in Brooklyn. He survived, he survived her by just a few months more than four years. An apostle to small policies. At the time, Mr. Hedgeman joined the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. It had only a few policies in force. The offices of the company were at 243 Broadway. In 1879, through the efforts of Mr. Hedgeman and the late Joseph F. Knapp, then present, it was organized into a new department, with the present day standing at for more, more than 4 million policies. It was his work at Metropolitan that brought him into recognition as a, quote, big insurance man. He did much to popularize insurance among the great body of the laboring and middle-class people who knew little about insurance and cared even less. He sent a vast army of agents throughout the country preaching the doctrine of care for the future and for the dependents. Very small policies were written by the company. So this is an interesting note here. Not necessarily to cemeteries, but in a way it does relate to cemeteries. And I have talked about this before, how for a long time benevolent societies in different forms were the way that people got buried. Life insurance in many ways changes the funeral business. And I know I have talked about this before when I did the episode on the American way of death and muckraking and how eventually the funeral companies, and the insurance companies would get in business together and basically bilk people out of money. So this is 
I'm torn about the proliferation of life insurance because to a certain degree, it does provide a level of security to people, but certainly also a lot of people got very rich off it. And in many cases, it is a racket. So not strictly speaking cemetery stuff, but it's very interesting. So they talk more and more about the growth of metropolitan life. It's interesting because they love to talk about this. His artistic office furniture and interior decorations upon money which was lavishly expended was also a part of his theory of business. So that whole tower, having a very towering presence was very important to this. Then this is perhaps my favorite part. Looked like Edwin Booth. Mr. Hedgeman was a man of striking appearance and personality. He did not in the least resemble a captain of industry or businessman, as those types are generally described. Indeed, on many occasions, he was likened by business intimates to the late Edwin Booth, who, if you are not familiar with the theater, big name, look him up. His hair was worn in long ringlets flowing to his shoulders, somewhat affecting the fashion of Benjamin Franklin, making him an instantly recognizable and unforgettable figure in any gathering of insurance men or bankers. His face was smooth-shaven, his features clear-cut, and his eyes gray. His associates remember him as always wearing an old-fashioned stock and standing collar, a frock coat, and light trousers. During the past 20 years, Mr. Hedgeman's health was not good. Although he was far from being an invalid, he returned from a trip to Japan and other far eastern countries nearly 20 years ago with a love of Japanese and Chinese art. Many beautiful specimens of eastern crafts, including pictures, ivory, and carved woods, all decorated his home, Rose Dean, at Orienta Point. He made another trip to the Orient, in which he circled the globe later, came home in poorer health than before. After this, he discarded a large part of the bourbon as chief executive of the company, but still retained a great interest in its affairs. And then it kind of goes into his travel. Um, they talk about the fact that he built and decorated the Salem Baptist Church in New Rochelle and placed a memorial window after the death of Mrs. Hedgeman. Her funeral was actually held there and recently expressed a wish that his funeral might also be held there, as had been his wife. They talk about his yacht club, the Chamber of Commerce, all of this good stuff. Then, Mr. Hedgeman leaves one son, Major John R. Hedgeman, Assistant Secretary of Metropolitan Life, who for many years was a prominent member in the National Guard of New York State. And here it is, yeah, so this confirms it. A sister, Mrs. Miss Abby Hedgeman of Flatbush, his sister-in-law and her husband, George W. Rogers, and Fred Lyon, a brother-in-law. Mr. and Mrs. Rogers and Mr. Lyon maintained their home with him. And again, if you look at census records, he was very close with his wife's family. And this is going to be pertinent a little bit later. Funeral services will be held Wednesday at 1130 o'clock in the Salem Baptist Church, New Rochelle, of which the Reverend Dr. T.B. Johnson is pastor. Internment will be in Woodlawn Cemetery. So, thus ends this. Now, the place of his burial is pretty striking, and if you looked at the episode announcement, I actually put a picture of it up there. So, Woodlawn Cemetery, which I have talked about a number of times on this podcast, is one of the later cemeteries in the world of big-name cemeteries. So, primarily, I talked about it in relation to the burial of a number of individuals from the Titanic so Woodlawn is founded later. It is more of a lawn park cemetery than a rural cemetery. It is in the Bronx. In my opinion, and I know that this is not a popular opinion, I, I think it's more impressive than Greenwood. I know Greenwood is one of the original big three. Greenwood definitely has a better chapel. Greenwood has the more, the gothic gate. Like, there's a lot to be said for Greenwood. But Woodlawn is the really big money. The collection of mausoleums alone is just staggering. I think there's a more varied, for, you know, just a more varied type of monument at Woodlawn. It's really something. And for these big ticket people, the, what I would call in many ways, new money, now it's not necessarily true in all of their cases, Woodlawn was the place to be. So they're on Hickory Knoll, he had constructed a Greek Corinthian style mausoleum, very traditional neoclassical revival in that sense, 
some beautiful stained glass. The way the stained glass is actually oriented is interesting because it's sort of in the middle of the side. Inside there is a bench which is covered in green satin and there's a marble table. For a long time there was an unopened Bible which was a very common Victorian thing sitting on the table. I've seen more recent photos where it's no longer there. But impressive mausoleum. In fact, his funeral expenses and closing out his debts upon his death was somewhere to the tune of $250,000. Spent quite a bit of money. So I read a very interesting article that kind of broke down all of the information. So he left behind a legacy of about... Well, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what it was. So $3,362,048.92, upon which was collected an inheritance tax of $168,000. The bulk of his estate goes to his son, John R. Hedgeman Jr. He will eventually owe, so he inherits about $1.5 million. And on that, he will owe the overwhelming bulk of the tax. Now, the remainder of the estate is broken down to different people. So, for example, George and Camilla Rogers, who I have seen them alternately listed as sister and brother-in-law or cousins of his late wife. Either way, they lived with him. He leaves them about $125,000. He leaves his aunt $70,000. I didn't look too much into this. Also listed among his um, people who benefit from him is a man named Harley Fisk, who is of no relation, who gets $100,000. If you break this down, what you see is that his only grandson, Jay Coles Hedgeman, the one who started this whole story, Pop, the man who sent the photograph, he only inherits about $35,000 from his grandfather. Now, Jay Coles Hedgeman, let's talk a little bit about him. So he is, at this point, the only grandson of one of the very big hitters in American history. Made a lot of money. He himself is born in 1896. He will be the only living son of the only living son of John R. Hedgeman. So his father, John Rogers Hedgeman Jr. Let's talk a little bit about him. He is born in 1872. He marries his first wife on October 22nd, 1895. Her name is Elizabeth Coles. As I have already mentioned briefly, her father was a man named Barack Coles. Her mother was Kate Cape. She is a society girl in and of herself. And about a year after their marriage, so actually 13 months to be exact, they have a son. And this is Joseph Coles Hedgeman, Pop, the man who took the picture. Now, shortly thereafter, they do divorce. Because by January 1st, 1903, New Year's Day, John Rogers Hedgeman Jr. remarries to a woman named Grace Evelyn Carey. They marry in Bighorn, Wyoming. He will go on to have three more children than with her. I've seen mixed things. It appears that all of them were cremated, all of these children. None of them lives more than a year. Which leaves just J. Coles Hedgeman as his only heir. Now, it's very interesting because if you read, and I think that this is where the letter that I got from his grandson is explained, where... I get the feeling that he sort of cast aside his first wife. She went back to her parents. She will eventually, when uh, she dies in 1935, she is eventually buried with her parents. They are all buried at St. Paul's Episcopal Cemetery in Glen Cove, New York. She summered with them. She lived with them. And it seems that very much that J. Coles, he was raised by his mother and his grandparents. I am unaware of what kind of relationship that he had with his father. Even when his stepmother dies, so he is mentioned in both his father's obituary and his stepmother's obituary. His father dies in 1923. His stepmother dies in 1934. So he is mentioned in all of these things. But it seems that for the most part, as was often the case with divorces back in the day, that 
basically he went off with his mother and he was kind of the forgotten child. So to give you an idea, Major John R. Hedgeman dies at Sheffield, Mass. Sheffield, Massachusetts, October 26th, 1923. Major John R. Hedgeman Jr., son of the late John Rogers Hedgeman, president of Red, the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, died here yesterday in his 54th year. He was born in Brooklyn and is survived by his widow, Grace Carey of Brooklyn, and a son by a former marriage, Cole Hedgeman. The funeral service will be held at 3 p.m. Monday at St. Bartholomew's Church, Manhattan. Let's put it this way. I am just going by what I have read here. Um... This is another one. So John R. Hedgeman, son of the first president of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Um, that's not necessarily true. There's more than one president of the Metropolitan Life. Died Thursday morning at his summer home in Sheffield, Massachusetts. He had a city residence at 157th Avenue, Manhattan. He inherited a life interest of $1.5 million, half of his father's estate. He had been active in the New York National Guard for many years, joining the 7th Regiment in 1892 with a comparatively short time attaining the rank of major. He was also a fire buff, attended all the old fires in the last 10 years, and had made several daring rescues. In February 1917, he carried a child safely from a burning tenement at 2676 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. He also owned a ranch next to Buffalo Bills in Montana. And more than once, when Cody came east with his show, Hedgeman rode in it as a cowboy. Feudal services will be held in the chapel of St. Bartholomew's Church, Park Avenue. I get the sense that John Jr., he liked his little escapades. And while he was Secretary of Metropolitan Life himself, it seems like he liked to play at things. Though I think it's interesting both he and his father kind of played at being amateur firemen. But the riding as a cowboy is just priceless. Today, when we tend to think about divorced couples, we tend to think about the divide between them. In this case, you can clearly see that, like, his son went off with his mother, and it seems like she shaped his life, so much so that J. Cole's Hedgeman, for the rest of his life, he he engaged in the things that went along with that, even though his father may have been involved in whatever small way. Not to say that, and I read his obituary first, because this episode really is about Cole's Hedgeman. He's a fascinating character, and he built a life. He was a very successful man in and of himself, ran a textile business for much of the 20th century, only retiring shortly before his death. Sadly, the building where he did um, did work out of is no longer there. It was torn down for the expansion of some of Brown University's po- property. If you are familiar with Providence, it was right on Waterman Avenue. If you know where the subway is today, it was right across the street from the subway driven past it a million times. Uh, he lived in some beautiful houses, most of which are still there on the east side of Providence. You know, belonged to every significant social club, left a huge impact, so much so that his grandchildren still very much remember him. But there is one more thing I want to talk about. So I promise that this all came around to cemeteries. So after I got the letter from his grandson, just for kicks. Now, keep in mind, when I initially did this research, I was not in any way necessarily interested in the individual who took the picture or sent the Christmas card beyond trying to get it back to his family. So I had not really researched J. Cole's Hedgeman at all. It was more just pure information. Okay, this is who he is. This is who his grandson is. Need an address. So now I did. So I typed his name into newspapers.com and imagine my surprise when the first article that came up was about a cemetery. So, without further ado, I'm going to read to you this interesting little snippet that was published in the Wichita Eagle of all places. Burial plot suit is lost by Hedgeman. Court refuses to compel the cemetery to cancel old contracts. The case is novel in the courts. New York... March 8th, 1927. J. Coles Hedgeman, grandson of John R. Hedgeman, for many years president of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, lost a suit yesterday to reserve space in a mausoleum in Woodlawn Cemetery, erected by his grandfather for the burial of his wife and children. The appellate division dismissed the proceedings he brought to compel the Woodlawn Cemetery authorities to cancel a written instrument made by his grandfather in 1917, permitting the burial there of five persons still living, 
who were related to the elder Hedgeman's deceased wife. The case is said to be novel in the local courts. It is based on the asserted right of J. Coles Hedgeman as the present owner of the mausoleum to determine who would be interred there. When John R. Hedgeman died in 1919, he actually died in 1918, he left certain property, including the cemetery plot, to his son, John R. Hedgeman Jr., together with about $1.5 million in trust. And when the latter son died in 1923, the cemetery property went to his son, the plaintiff, meaning Coles Hedgeman. The mausoleum originally had room for nine interments. Space remains for seven. So at that point, just um, John Hedgeman and his wife had been buried there. Space remains for seven, and this includes the plaintiff, his mother, and five of the persons designated by John R. Hedgeman in writing to the cemetery company. So I think it's interesting that Elizabeth Coles Hedgeman was also guaranteed burial there, even though she had divorced from the son. The five additional are George W. Rogers, cousin of the deceased wife of John Hedgeman, and Mr. Rogers' wife, Camilla. I already mentioned them. They both got about $125,000 in the will as well as two brothers and a nephew of the elder Hedgeman's wife. The will of John R. Hedgeman left 5000 for the upkeep of the mausoleum, but the income was found to be insufficient, so Miss Abby Hedgeman, his sister, already talked about her, who has since been buried in the mausoleum, and George W. Rogers both contributed 5000 to make up the needed sum for maintenance. The cemetery company, in addition to asserting that the original directions made by John R. Hedgeman are irrevocable, insisted that the contribution by Mr. Rogers gives an interest not only to be set aside in the present suit. The plaintiff stood upon his contention that as the present owner of the plat, he had the right to determine which burials would be made. And since he plans to be interred there, he wants his wife and children buried beside him. He asserted that the rights of his wife and children were superior to those of great uncles and second cousins. The unanimous opinion of the appellate division holds that the present ownership for the plaintiff through dissent is affected by valid declaration of a trust, irrevocable by him. So a little novel cemetery law comes at the result of Cole's hedgeman. So he decides, so at this point he himself is married. So he and his wife had met and married at this point, Dahl, Dorothy, who I had already discussed, and he, at this point, has also had two children. So his daughters, Elizabeth and Nancy. Nancy was the one that kind of started this story when I found her obituary. She died in 2007. So he and his wife, who married in 1918. So at this point, this suit is in 1927. He's been married about 10 years. He has two daughters, born in 1921 and 1924. So he wants to try to protect the family mausoleum and guarantee that they will all be buried together. And he loses this suit. Now, this would go down as just a small curiosity in history, except for the fact that Coles Hedgeman is a bit of a force of nature. And so I couldn't help but wonder what happened to him. And so imagine my surprise when I was traveling, going up to New England as general, as generally I do, and I read this obituary again, and I saw that he had died in Rehoboth. So I did a little bit of searching. And the first thing I discovered was, in fact, that Coles Hedgeman was cremated when he died. He and his wife both. And they were cremated at Swan Point Cemetery, which if you know my long history, that's what I did my thesis on. It's one of the places that started my interest. So that was kind of fun. My father was also cremated at Swan Point. So a lot of connections there. But then beyond that, I saw that he was buried at the Village Cemetery in Rehoboth, Massachusetts which is where he and his wife had lived for most of their lives. And he was buried with his first wife. Um, if you remember from the obituary, he remarried two years before his death to Marguerite Vio, which I will say, Cole's good for you. So Marguerite, he and Marguerite go way back. She was his secretary for his entire career. In 1945, when he filled out his registration, the name that he listed as someone who would always know where he was was actually his secretary. So I don't know if they had a special friendship over the years. 
when they got married, she was 75 and he was 88. At that point, I think anybody getting married is just for companionship. But I also think it's a little sweet. I think he loved his wife and had a very long, happy marriage to her. But also, good for you, Coles, marrying your secretary at 88. Back to the cemetery. So the interesting thing is, is that the village cemetery not only is right down the street from where he lived for almost 50 years of his life. He lived in Rehoboth from the 40s right up until the day he died. But when I go up to New England to stay, I stay with my best friend from high school and she lives in Seekonk, Massachusetts, three miles from where Cole's Hedgeman was buried. So on my last day there, before I flew back to Atlanta, so earlier this week on Monday, at lunchtime, it was a cold, sunny day, about, not that cold, about 40 degrees, I put my sweatshirt on and I drove three miles up the road to go see Cole's Hedgeman. And I will say, it's not a mausoleum at Woodlawn. Which, don't get me wrong, the mausoleums at Woodlawn are beautiful. They're very impressive. But it strikes me that Cole's Hedgeman, thanks to his mother, who her name was Elizabeth, gotta love the Elizabeths, he sort of struck out on his own. He started his own company. He didn't rely on his grandfather's name for anything. Granted, his other grandparents, I think, were also very well off, and he definitely had all of the advantages, all of the education. He was an erudite gentleman of the highest order. But he created his own life, his own persona. He took photographs and sent them as Christmas cards and is still much beloved by his family now, 30 years after his death. Certainly, he and I overlapped for very little. He died exactly a month after I was born. So he's been dead now for 35 years. But I still wanted to see his grave. And so the village cemetery in Rehoboth is as traditional a New England cemetery as you can possibly get. It was founded in 1773, so there are plenty of colonial era gravestones. There's a massive receiving vault built into the hill. Very few trees open. All the grass was dead that time of year. There is a wonderful, probably 1930s era chapel that is now used for storage. I would love to know the history of, so if anybody in Rehoboth is listening, I can't find anything online, but I'm in love with this building. And interestingly enough, Cole's Hedgeman and his wife are buried right near it. They are buried on the end of a row, and they have flush individual markers. But their family marker is actually a natural New England stone, which those are my favorite type of headstones. That is just very simple and has the name Hedgeman carved into it. Some nice plantings, obviously, which were all dead. Somebody had visited recently for the holiday season and had placed like a little decorative basket. I took some pictures, so I will share them. So I did go and pay my respects, and for an old-fashioned New England gentleman that lived there his whole life and very much created his own way, it was a lovely cemetery plot. And so while it's sad that he lost his suit in 1927, I think it was still a very fitting burial for him and in many ways more representative of the life that he lived. So hopefully that was an interesting little story about millionaires and mystery photographs and me being a little crazy and writing to complete strangers to send them pictures of people that they don't even know. Hopefully it's a fun little story for the new year. Um, I liked it. I thought it was really a little unusual for Tomb of the View, but nonetheless pretty great. Um, Life is always exciting and you never know just who you're going to run into or the stories that you might stumble across, because there are some pretty extraordinary ones out there. As always, thank you for everyone who has listened this year. It's been great. A lot of downloads, a lot of growth continuing. Thank you for sticking with me. Um, I was a couple episodes short of my goal for this year. I think I'm going to end up with 45 episodes for the year, so I am three or four short of what my goal was, but... It's been a crazy year between family stuff and everything else, starting a new job. So thank you for bearing with me for all of the delays and things like that. If you still want to give me a late Christmas present, I would very much appreciate a rating and review. Um, Spotify, you can now review podcasts. That's exciting. So if you're a Spotify listener, this gives you your opportunity. As always, Apple Podcasts, all of those places that have rating systems, any of those, it really just helps me be so much more searchable. Um, 
So that would be a lovely gift to close out 2020 on. I would appreciate that. Follow along on social media. I'll be doing a year of the end wrap up. I did my top nine this morning. And of course, we have plenty more to come next year. Hopefully COVID will calm down. I would love to do more interviews. I really hate doing interviews over the phone. I prefer to do them in person, which is just my own personal pet peeve. But I would love to get more guests on the show, explore some new stuff. I've got a long list of topics I want to do. Either way, lots of more exciting cemeteries to come. But for now, thank you again. Happy New Year. Health, happiness to you and your family. I will see you next week. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.